Welcome to another episode of Out the Rabbit Hole here on KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine. We're also on the web at KUCI.org. I'm Robert Larson. This is our October 6th, 2011 edition of the show. Before we get fully underway, I have a couple of quick reminders for you. First of all, the opinions expressed on this program are not necessarily those of the KUCI staff or management or the UC Board of Regents. And if you want to give me some feedback on the show, I always appreciate that. You can email me at rglarson at KUCI.org. You can also catch me on Facebook. That's facebook.com slash rglarson. It's astonishing how difficult it is to get any kind of acknowledgement in mainstream circles that there's some kind of serious problem with the extreme number of people we've been incarcerating in the U.S. for the past 35 years. So I always feel like I'm, to use a phrase, coming out the rabbit hole when somebody actually isn't in denial about it. Uh, when that person is additionally offering a fresh insight into how and why this is happening and what we can do about it, it's truly heartening. This is what we get from a new book called A Plague of Prisons, The Epidemiology of Mass Incarceration in America. Um, author Ernest Drucker is a scholar-in-residence and senior research associate at John Jay College of Criminal Justice, Professor Emeritus of Family and Social Medicine at Albert Einstein College of Medicine and an adjunct professor at Columbia University's Mailman School of Public Health. He's also directed a drug addiction treatment and AIDS research program in the poorest neighborhoods of the South Bronx. Ernest Drucker is our uh, special guest today. Ernest Drucker, welcome to the show. It's good to be here. Yeah, yeah. I was so, uh, as I said, heartened to uh, come across this book and uh, just is, uh, I don't know, I guess it's disturbing to me that this mostly isn't talked about, and when it is, it's like uh, people aren't really looking at it in a way that we can really come to uh, make some kind of breakthrough in really uh, dealing with this. And so, you know, I've heard others use the term epidemic to describe our, our mass incarceration problem, but you're the first person I've heard discussing this situation in terms of, of how we can use the tools of epidemiology to actually decipher how this is happening and how we can solve it. So how did it come to you to address it in this way? Well, because I, I started working with uh, drug addicts in the Bronx in the 1960s, and uh, after about 10 years of doing that, um, uh, with a lot of problems uh, of, of attitudes about doing drug treatment, there's so much, you know, so much uh, stigma, and the period of by the early '80s uh, with Reagan was, you know, just say no, and there, you know, just a lot of um, crap heaped on people who had drug problems that got in the way of helping them with those problems. And then the war on drugs really kicked in in the '70s and '80s with long mandatory prison sentences, especially in New York State where I am, the Rockefeller drug laws. So the people who had the problem of a drug problem suddenly also had a, a criminal justice problem. They were getting arrested in large numbers again and again, doing exactly what drug addicts do, which is buy and sell drugs to use and use drugs and possess drugs. And and then in the, it really happened in the 70s, but we couldn't see it till the 80s, was the AIDS epidemic arrived. And it arrived silently at first. We didn't know who was infected because that's the nature of the beast. But they began to get sick and die by the early 80s in the Bronx. And uh, by the mid-80s, we knew what it was, and we had a test. When we tested our 
we've been population a thousand patients in the Bronx. Half of them were affected with AIDS, uh, and that launched the AIDS epidemic. Uh, and um, and then uh, all these guys were in and out of jail and prison all the time as well. So you began to see this kind of synergy of all these different um, conditions. And um, in doing research, people try to control that, so they'll look at how drug users do in treatment, and they'll control for whether they were in jail or not. In fact, you can't separate that stuff out. It's such an integral part of the lives of people who have AIDS, especially who have AIDS because of drugs. Or, and, um, and so the epidemic quality of it got, got more complicated than, 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 than we thought, it, you know, because obviously AIDS is an epidemic, it's an infectious disease, and big thing about epidemiology is it's concerned with the patterns of disease in the population, how, how disease spreads from person to person, and you use that to try to turn it around, stop the epidemic, you stop transmission, um, which is different than medicine. In medicine, you take a person at a time, you try to treat their illness in them as an individual. Um, so uh, the, the epidemic model for looking at what was going on made sense to me, and, uh, and that's what the book is about, and, and especially the relationship to drugs. Not so much drug use, but the, uh, the phenomenon of the criminalization of drugs, because that, that's really what it comes back to, is that this epidemic was launched by the war on drugs, and it's, it's criminalization of drug users, the imposition of long mandatory sentences, which fills jails up, and then once you put someone in that system, it's like an infection. It stays with them. Because even though they come out, they go back in again in very large numbers. They're unable to get work. They get reunited with their families. All kinds of restrictions placed on people who have felony arrests, drugs especially. And, and so the thing perpetuates itself. And that's another one of the signs of an epidemic, uh, that it, that it, that it um, transmits, sustains itself. So, so those are the sorts of things that uh, the book is about. Yeah, so uh, those of us that have been actually concerned about the issue of mass incarceration for a while, it, it's like we we know some of these reasons. So I, I kind of see your your book as this thing of like people who haven't been concerned with this or or maybe see the numbers and just don't uh, really feel that we need to do something about it. And, and you are, are putting in this very stark manner of like, let's look at this like an epidemic, let's say, uh, here's a problem. It's a really big problem. This is ruining so many lives, as you point out in the book, something like the uh, cholera epidemic. And so it, it, let's use that model. And then you, you kind of go back from there. Where where does this originate? And so that it, it's like people that might not otherwise be able to see that this is something that we can change can now see it that way. Well, you know, I, I think, Robert, I think you raised a very important point, is people's perception of, of this phenomenon. Because while you or I might see it as a problem that two million people are in prison, uh, other people see it as a real good idea. And they point, to, you know, some of them just out of, you know, sort of, uh, you know, um, bloody-mindedness, as the British would say, <laughs> uh, you know, have a kind of a vengeful attitude about people who break the law. You know, you, you do the crime, you got to do the time. But also um, people believing that um, one of the reasons, you know, crime dropped very precipitously starting in 1993 all around the country. And in the, so what are we, 15 years past that now, 53, 03, more than 15, 18 years past it. 
And crime had continued to drop till a few years ago. It's begun to go up again, especially violent crime in a number of mid-sized cities, which is significant because that's where the drug trade moved. The violence associated with drugs has always been the violence associated with drug markets, mm-hmm. Mexico being the most dramatic example of that in the history of the world. Uh, but certainly Los Angeles in its time, a movie like uh, Training Day, uh, you, you understand what's going on. Uh, uh, but or you know, a show like The Wire, you know, you understand the violence is related to the business of selling drugs because it's illegal. Mm-hmm. Not the drugs themselves. It's not like drug crazed people are going out and killing people. But uh, th- this phenomenon of the crime dropping in the '90s, especially, first of all, led to uh, the the attitude is, oh, we've solved the, the the drug and crime problem, and you don't hear it mentioned in political campaigns anymore for after after this period of Willie Horton and Dukakis race back in, what was that, 92? No, I think that was 88. Was 88, right. Yeah. So um, the, 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 the idea that people cannot not only not see this as a problem but see it as a good thing is a serious issue. More commonly, though, certainly in the communities where people get arrested and go to jail from, which in, in this country means the poor African-American and Latino communities, that's who fills the prisons. You know, those two groups, uh, which are blacks and Latinos, represents maybe 25% of the U.S. population, and they represent something like 90% of the, uh, or 80, 80% roughly, of the, of the prison population. Wow. And, uh, and that, that's because the system is set up to uh, identify those people in those communities uh, where drug selling does take place more openly than it does in uh, white suburban communities where people, you know, have cell phones and deliver the drugs to your door. Uh, so the exposure to uh, arrest and, and, and introduction to the criminal justice system is really quite different by race. And uh, as this program began to kick in and build steam over, over the decades prior to the to 95, let's say, from 75 through 95, that 20-year period, uh, you began to get very large proportions of communities uh, being involved in prison, coming in, going out. So in Washington, D.C., black men have over 90% chance of being in prison in their lifetime. So you know, it becomes ubiquitous, and, uh, and everyone has this experience. Uh, it has a different kind of meaning but than, than it does in, in, you know, in white communities where fewer people get, many fewer people get arrested and go to jail. But it still carries a great deal of stigma with it and shame, and, and more importantly, actually, uh, legal restrictions on your ability to function as a worker, as a parent, as a, you know, anything. It's very hard to, to resume a life once you have a record now. So... That, that, that's another feature of the epidemic. It's like an epidemic of a chronic disease like diabetes, a heart disease. The best you can do is kind of limit the damages. You can't really cure it, uh, especially with the prevalent attitudes about, uh, about punishment now. That, you know, one of the, one of, I don't know if you saw this debate, the Republican debate. Uh, it, it was in California, I think, uh, on, on September on September 7th, I think, where uh, um, Brian Williams from NBC asked Rick Perry uh, what he had to say about being governor and having had 234 executions during his term of office. And before he could even answer the question, you know, and he was going to say, I didn't lose any sleep about it, but before he could even <laughs> say that, the audience, which was a Tea Party audience apparently, broke out into, into cheers and applause. Right. And I found that very chilling. Yes. 
for 230 people getting executed. You know, most of the world considers this a uh, barbaric kind of policy that we execute people. And, and the fact that we make all these mistakes, there are over 130 cases of DNA, DNA um, exoneration of capital cases already, and it grows all the time, and we miss a lot of them. This guy, this guy Troy Davis, who was executed a few weeks ago, you know, the, you know, was so clearly doubt about, you know, the, 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 you know his, his trial and whether uh, the sentence was appropriate given the ambiguity. And the, these characters in Georgia just rushed through the process. As soon as the Supreme Court refused to hear the case at the last appeal, you know, within an hour and a half, they'd executed him. Yeah, uh, it, it is really troubling, very disturbing, and that's there's this whole uh, sort of psychology in Americans uh, uh, living w- with a lot of fear and being manipulated into those fearful sort of states. And I'd like to kind of go into that a little more. One thing I do want to touch on uh, is that, because you mentioned this a bit, the whole idea that crime rates are down and uh, people in, in certain uh, areas and People will will make the argument that the mass incarceration is the reason that crime rates are down, and, and I think it's important that we really uh, talk about that and, and break that apart, and, and that it's uh, not necessarily that that is a logical fall. You know, the mass incarceration. Well, it, it, lower. Seems, it seems on the face of it, it seems reasonable, except for the fact. <laughs> I guess the facts are <laughs> that it, the reason for it doesn't include that there are 2 million people who committed crimes, many of whom are drug users, who commit more crimes to get their drugs. If there are 2 million such people in jail, uh, they're not able to commit crimes. That's one of the principles of why people believe in incarceration. It incapacitates the individual to commit crimes while they're behind bars. Okay? Uh, now, in fact, uh, when you look at that in some context, uh, everybody who committed a crime isn't in prison currently. In fact, the prison population probably represents about 20%, one out of, one out of uh, four, one out of five of the people who have been convicted of crimes in the last decade. Most are out. People don't stay in prison. They come out of prison. In any given time, there are more former prisoners than current prisoners. So what about them? Well, they, they're often, uh, in the past, uh, were likely to be back involved in the crimes related to drug, drug deals and drug use because many were drug users. So first of all, there's, there's that phenomenon. Then there's the fact that uh, there's, there's a high-risk group for committing crimes, especially violent crimes, which is uh, young minority males, single-parent households, 20-year-olds, let's say 18 to 22, is a very high risk. That's the highest probability zone for getting arrested and going to jail for the first time. And uh, because of changes in, in the availability of contraception and availability of abortions 20 years earlier than the 1980s, back in the 60s and 70s, you began to see a dramatic drop in the number of young adult males coming out of single-parent families uh, in the period going into the 90s. And by 93, it was very pronounced. There were 25% fewer 20-year-olds from single-parent families, minority males, than there had been 20 years ago. So that's immediately dropping the, the number of people who were at risk for committing crimes. The other thing was the uh, is the Clinton years, the 90s, is when the economy was better. There were job programs that had filtered down to the inner city. Minimum wage was up a bit. Um, and things were going better in a lot of ways. And these things all pile up together to produce this crime drop. 
Now, the crime drop is going, is, is, has ended, and it's beginning to go up, especially violent crime. There's a lot of things that sound like the prison yard kind of thing. You look at someone the wrong way, and you get blown away. And there's still plenty of guns out there. So, um, and the drug trade continues to be the major economic engine of life in the poorest communities. So put all those things together, and we've solved nothing. Uh, the the, the uh, fact something like overdoses in the United States have tripled in the last 10 years. Fatal overdoses have tripled in the last 10 years. And the big change in that is that who's dying of overdose now is not uh, young street guys you know, shooting heroin or cocaine. It's middle-aged white men using pills. Mm-hmm. Because the pharmaceutical, uh, the pharmaceutical drugs, things like OxyContin, these powerful opiates that you can inject and you can get high in, sometimes people start using them as pain medication and get hooked on that way. But there's a huge, huge diversion of these drugs from the pharmacies and the, the doctors who prescribe them into a market, and they're really dangerous. Uh, and the doctors don't don't know how to use them. People have scripts from five doctors at the same time, and the controls for that are very poor. And the, I think the pharmaceutical industry makes sure the controls are poor because they don't want to break on their sales of these drugs. And you've been hearing about Oxycontin for 10 years now mm-hmm. as a dangerous drug. And some of the doctors involved in that company, Purdue Pharma, were prosecuted around misrepresenting it, about dragging their heels, uh, their heels and making it safer. And yet there it is. It's a very effective pain medication, and, and, and I, I guess 90% of the people who take it have no problem and aren't abusing it. But so many people take it that 10% is still a lot of people, and a lot of them are dying of overdoses. Right. I, I live in a uh, mostly white uh, suburb, and yeah, the OxyContin uh, is a really big problem out there. The uh, uh, heroin and... Um, um, methamphetamine also really big problems among this mostly white population do you think that it's uh we won't uh see uh, mass incarceration of this more white population that that people won't uh go for that well i i think the the what's been called the prison industrial complex has grown so much at this point it it will be fed and it will feed it, itself on white people if that's what it needs to do uh and 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 as the drug trade and the drug manufacturing meth you know meth you know meth is a, is a, is a fa- you know, red they call it the redneck cocaine right mm-hmm. uh is uh, is is very very um uh popular uh, and available and easy to manufacture, and you know, in a, in a, a laboratory in the trunk of your car out in the middle of the field somewhere, uh, and uh, and those drugs um, are are becoming more and more important. The, the, let's say the pharmaceutical drugs rather than the or the you know the botanical drugs, the ones where you grow a plant and refine it into heroin or cocaine or even the plant marijuana. Uh, and uh, so, uh, you know, we're, we're, we're behind, you know, we're behind the curve always. We're always, it's like the generals always fighting the last war. It's true of the drug wars, too. We're fighting the, the last wars. Although, uh, you know, look at, look at Afghanistan and look at uh, Mexico. Though They're dealing with, you know, the remember, botanical drugs are a free commodity, basically. You, they're weeds. You can grow them anywhere. Mm-hmm. And then processing them into, uh, into a, a valuable commodity uh, that can be concealed and moved across borders has huge implications for, you know, like global security, for example. All borders are compromised by corruption associated with the drugs. 
the, the, the human the, the human trafficking, the sex trade uh, rides on the back of those channels. Because once you once you've got the fix in to border guards between Yugoslavia and uh, Italy, let's say, um, they stay fixed, and you can move any product through that border at that point. That's what happens. And someday it'll be a, a, a dirty nuclear weapon, and and then maybe people will pay more attention. The price we pay for for drug prohibition, for criminalizing drugs, which is you know which is the wrong way to go. We do drug drugs can be very dangerous. We've all had experience with friends and family members who have suffered terribly from drugs. And if your experience has been like mine, it's damn hard to get good treatment for people. There's a lot of crappy treatment around. That, that that exploits people's you know ne, ne, you know the panic that parents are in very often they pay huge amounts of money and get nothing uh, the, the treatment apparatus is now in bed with the criminal justice apparatus in New York State half the drug treatment slots in the whole state are taken up by mandates from the from the court system mm-hmm. which are, again are portrayed as a step forward than being in jail if it was your kid brother you'd rather he be in some treatment program where he has a bed at least than being in a, in, a, in a solitary in prison or something so it's a real mess and it's taken on a uh, chronic quality that's very hard to change money is a big deal you know there there are governors around some very right-wing conservative governors who are trying to shrink their prison systems just for the money they don't know what they're going to do with the people but that was never their interest in the first place their you know their interest in it was political you could get votes by being tough on crime and tough on drugs and if you weren't tough on crime and tough on drugs you get slammed by your opponents oh yeah we have that problem even here in california which is considered a fairly liberal state and uh you uh you know you can't get elected to to any sort of high office in the state if you are perceived as uh not tough on crime and we have these ballot initiatives that the voters get to to vote on uh, and and create laws uh in a um uh, pure democratic way there that uh, are whenever it has to do with crime, uh, being tough on crime, it almost always will pass. And right, and it's and it's uh, it's it's got huge political um, force behind it, and it's irresistible. I've heard that the drug laws and and uh, are someone described their catnip for uh, you know for state legislators. Mm, yeah, they yeah. Build their careers on it. The um, you've got a great asset right up, up not up the road, but up north in the Bay Area. A guy named Jonathan Simon, who's uh, who's a law professor and a political scientist at uh, at Berkeley, has written a wonderful book uh, published by, by the same publisher as my book, The New Press, and it's called Governing Through Crime. Uh, oh, it's not. I'm sorry. It's published by Oxford Press, and 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 Jonathan's a great scholar. It's a much bigger book than mine, and it, and it's a fantastic story of the way in which the uh, crime has become the campaign basis for so much of politics in the United States in this last period, explicitly or implicitly. So his book is governing through crime. My book is the plague of prisons because I'm looking at the at the at the concrete manifestation of that policy of, of governing through crime uh, with the drug. Because they're the ones that are easiest to uh, to puff up into a campaign that has huge effects because so many people use drugs, uh, and that traces back to the fundamental uh, flaw uh, that that drug prohibition represents, just as alcohol prohibition did. And if you've seen, there's a new series just started on public television by the, by Ken Burns of prohibition, meaning alcohol prohibition. And I, I guess uh, I'm old enough that. You know, I grew up knowing about it, and I'm not sure if 
kids and high school students or college students today really do know about it, that, that they made it illegal to have beer and to have wine and to have liquor uh, in, a, in a society that had used alcohol for hundreds of years. Yeah, uh, yeah, and, and we haven't um, learned and the lessons. Incredible thing to do, and the show is worth watching. I saw, I saw the first two shows because the history is is stunning. You know, it's this it's this coalition of really well intentioned people and all kinds of crazies backed up by big industry because it was a period uh, turn of the centuries when it gets its its, its real traction as, as people are moving into into factory labor in large numbers and you can't afford to have people drunk when they're you know around machines and and people there was a lot of drunkenness a lot of misery and that's what people drink for and lost days of work and then the, the social workers were upset about you know wives getting beaten and children being abused and all that was associated with drunkenness uh, underneath that was 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 a tale about immigration the the attitudes about it was always the chinese who used opium and the mexicans who smoked marijuana and the irish who drank whiskey it was always it was always especially given the puritan history in this country it was a way a way of condemning some group uh, and 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 so they decided, and and were able to change the Constitution of the United States to make it illegal to have a beer. You know what a concept. Yeah, yeah. This is out the rabbit hole. KUCI in Irvine. Robert Larson here. I'm speaking with Ernest Drucker, and we're talking about his book, A Plague of Prisons. The Epidemiology of Mass Incarceration in America. This uh, book will really open your eyes, and uh, even those of you who are aware that we do have a problem with mass incarceration will give you a fresh way to look at it and to talk to your uh, friends and associates about this issue and uh, maybe uh, get a real uh, change in uh, going here. And, yeah, it's it's interesting what you were just saying there, Ernest, about uh, it, it seems that you can always... Uh, count on uh, racism and bigotry to get people to, uh, you know, act irrationally and uh, just stoking those fears. And it just seems that this whole uh, issue of, of uh, mass incarceration that is you know, and involves the prison industrial complex, it's just, it is, it is all fear-based. And you can get people to just go along with something that is just really absurd and grotesque because you've got them in, in such a state of fear. Yeah. Well, and, 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 and um, I think that's going to probably get worse now between the economy and people having lost the foundation of their, their homes, their jobs. Uh, you know, somebody's probably going to do something nasty in a terrorist vein sometime in the next couple of years. Can't go on where nobody gets through if they, their underwear bombs or their shoe bombs. Uh, uh, yeah, I heard a report the other night. I'm just saying these are that the, the country will have will get shaken up in various ways, and it's already pretty shaken up. I, one of the things I realized that from, uh, I'm in New York and I was around the the, the 9/11 site. Uh, you know, immediately my son worked near there. Thank God he was okay. But uh, I don't think we've recovered from uh, from that that shock to our sense of security. You know, it made everybody feel vulnerable, and it didn't help to have. Uh, you know this this you know George George W Bush in office those years it just undermined everyone's confidence in, in the ability of government to do anything and the Tea Party comes out of that as much as anything else yeah. is people throwing their hands up about the national government being of any use and meantime you know, all the money's gone that you know everybody paid their taxes for everybody you know everybody paid for Social Security and Medicaid and suddenly it's not going to be there 
uh, a couple of a lot of good stuff getting written about this these days, but I don't know what that does because you're right about the fear. You push that button, and people kind of pull in their perspective. They get very, you know, they get very um, narrowly focused on covering themselves and their families, mm-hmm. kind of protection, kind of you know, attitude rather than how can we all get through this together. Right, um, you're there in uh, in New York, and uh, we have. Uh recently been seeing not too much on the mainstream media but it's a bit the the whole uh, occupy wall street uh uh situation that's going on and do do you see uh any uh thing going on with the, the people out there and and seeing the problem of uh of corporate america having too much uh, power and control over the government and tying that into your specific issue here of the problem of mass incarceration I, I don't I don't see it being connected in, in, in anyone talking about it. I mean, typically in a, in a social justice movement, which which is what what the Wall Street Occupy Occupy Wall Street is turning into, as, the, as labor unions move into it, as human rights groups move into it, as uh, as women's movements groups move into it. Uh, you know the agenda broadens, uh, and that's terrific. I think because it's not—it's not a matter of saying do this or do that. It's—it's—it's—it's it's, it's, it's pushing back and complaining loudly and publicly about uh, what what's, what's just happened to us in this last three or four years, where you know the 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 you know he, and Obama was not capable of stopping it. Was they basically robbed all our money? You know, it, 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 the famous story of, of General Perón, who's president of Argentina, you know, was deposed and he, lay, he was exiled to uh, Spain. And when they went to the Treasury, they discovered he had taken all the money with him. <laughs> uh, and uh, that's what happened with these guys. You know, before the collapse, they, 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 they moved a huge amount of money from, uh, from, from, the, uh, uh, from the system into their Swiss bank accounts. And uh, it's very hard to get it back. Right, and then uh, that, that situation is causing more desperation, which will lead to more crime, which will lead to more fear, which will lead to people, you know, who aren't uh, enlightened, who want to uh, engage in more mass incarceration, and it's this kind of, and so then we have uh, the prison industrial complex you mentioned, which are corporations, which are, uh, I guess, publicly traded in, in some cases, and yeah. uh, there we go. <laughs> I mean the, pri- the private the privatization of prisons. That's that's a, that's a very important issue because it represents a really well organized, well funded, successful in Wall Street. Their stocks have done better than the average for the whole time they've been here. Correction Corporations of America. It's very specific, however. Half the states have uh, higher private companies to run some or all of their prisons, uh, and the other half don't. They, they have a, they, that doesn't mean they don't spend money in the private sector. Obviously, the construction of prisons, supplying food, medical care, repairs, uh, the electric bill, the phone bill. Obviously, the, the, you know the prison system, which has two million the two million beds or more, uh, is is a big customer for everything. That so, in fact, you you can do an equation that there's roughly one job in the criminal justice system for every prison bed. Yeah, that's uh, a lot of jobs. It's a big industry, two and a half million jobs. These people yeah. have a vested interest, and I mean, we I think you know we have a problem here in California with the uh, union of uh, correctional officers, and I mean, 
where we you can be basically uh, pro union and think that's a good thing that that uh, workers are are getting decent wages and benefits and those kinds of things but there's also there's a vested interest and they are often promoting anything that will increase incarceration because that's it's right. job security it's like any other business they want you know they want to promote the you know their their volume and their profit margin and even though it's mostly not profitable uh, I, I've even heard, you can tell me if, if, if there's any truth to it, that the, that the California Correctional Office Association played an important part in defeating the gay marriage bill. I, I don't know that specifically, but I know a lot of other... Anytime a bill comes up or, or anytime we have something that, again, is a ballot initiative where the voters get to vote on it, if it has anything to do with crime, the Correctional Officers Union will be putting a lot of money into promoting it if it's going to result in more incarceration or defeating the bill if it's going to promote um, alternatives to incarceration. And it's, uh, it's very stark and it's very uh, uh, troubling. Uh, it's, uh, you know, I, t- I talked to one of these correctional officers recently that I just happened to meet somewhere, and she was talking about that we were going to be releasing a lot of people from our uh, prisons because there's not the money to pay for it and they're... And and I was saying, well, I, I'm sure it's not the uh, murderers and rapists that are going to be uh, released. There's going to be people that are uh, in there for more minor offenses and that they're not going to be people that are necessarily dangerous. And she was having none of that. And it was just like, oh, well, if they're in prison, they're there for a reason. And if they committed a minor crime, they probably committed a, a bigger crime somewhere else. And uh, it's like it, it was really like this this dogma it, it was really strange to to hear it and uh oh, it, you got you got it just right that's exactly what happens it's it, you know, there's a public version of that that people tend to believe if you got arrested you probably did something wrong even though it says innocent till proven guilty that's not how people think most people have a very i don't know undeveloped added moral and ethical attitude about law enforcement uh, they, they get very passive, what you were saying before about not wanting to know about the prisons, not wanting to know about what happens. And, and it, it, you're right about the fear. It, that, that's a, that, you know, fear kind of closes down your lens. You see things in a narrow way, uh, especially you know, things, how it affects you. Are you safe or not? And, and, and when uh, politicians learn how to exploit that, you know, Willie Horton being the classic case in, in that Dukakis election, uh, it really works. And that, and that's that's one of the really dangerous things about it. it. It somehow uses a good quality of our democratic system against it. It's almost like you know these autoimmune diseases where your immune system, something that's supposed to protect you, misfires and winds up attacking you. Yeah. And that's what's happened with the the system of punishment. Uh, it, you know the, the the roots of our prison system were not out of coming out of punishment. They weren't, you know, the extension of the torture chambers of the Middle Ages. They were the first prisons in America were set up by Quakers who had some idea of redemption through being in the country. And, and, and But, however, since it was bad company, they weren't allowed to talk to each other. So they, had a, they imposed silence uh, on the prisoners. And they had to live in isolation because they couldn't, they couldn't rub off from the other criminals. And and that's that's the, you know the penitentiary was named for being penitent, mm-hmm. uh, you know very moral kind of moralistic kind of model of what of what uh, of what crime represented, which was more modern than than having the devil in you and having to be um, you know burnt alive at the stake. We move forward from that, <laughs> but 
know, uh, it's it's same underlying, same underlying uh, attitude. I think it is driven by fear, and 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 if you don't have a um, a responsible government that says no, no, you, you can't do that. We 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 don't we don't do that because we're civilized. You wouldn't want it done to you if you were in, if you were accused of a crime. And 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 that's why that's what it means to be a democracy. We have a process for that, for that. But when a country doesn't do that, when elected officials all get on the bandwagon and let's lock up as many people as possible and throw the key away, which is what the mandatory drug sentences were, this was a group they could pick on because people were afraid of drugs, and uh, and and they thought there was no hope, and so let's lock them all up. Yeah, people were afraid uh, of drugs. No, it, and, you know, it wasn't a very thoughtful move, but politically it worked just fine. Yeah, and people are afraid of darker-skinned people, and so, yeah, it worked out fine. And, and it's this thing, it's interesting you point that out, because I've always thought of this as, like, uh, prison, imprisoning people should be about two things, keeping the public safe from people who are truly dangerous, people who are violent right. or whatever, and... Uh, reforming those people who are in prison to the extent that they can be reformed. But it has become this thing where it's about punishment. And it's right. about people have this rage and they have this uh, this notion of, of revenge. And again, again, it's all fear-based. And we don't have a whole lot of time left, so I want to go over a couple of things here, uh, Ernest. And again, the book is A Plague of Prisons, The Epidemiology of Mass Incarceration, in America, Ernest Drucker. Let me, let me mention, by the way, Robert, there's yep. a website, a, a plague of plague of prisons, one word, plagueofprisons.com, which has not only the you know you can buy the book there, obviously, and look at it, but it has a lot of the sources, uh, reports, and and resources about specific issues in this, like what happens at reentry to people. That are that unlike the book, or uh, it's 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 got live links. So you know, a student or someone who wants to study this, it'll take you into the literature in a way that, uh, you know, I had to do to write the book, mm-hmm. but I, I didn't want to lose it. So this website is, is, is useful for educational kind of purposes around this stuff for people who, who want to look at it, plagueofprisons.com. Plagueofprisons.com. Okay. So uh, the uh, let's go over some numbers here, if we could, because uh, it's we're talking about this in a kind of general way. But I think some people need to, like, actually hear those, those numbers of... Uh, uh, because there there is a denial about this in a lot of ways. It, it, I, the percentages of people we have in prison now compared to like 30, 40 years ago and the, how we compare to other countries, if you could throw some of those out that you have. Sure. The, the, you can see them on the website too, the graphs and so on. So the important thing is we, we had, in, before this started, this, this epidemic started in 1970, let's say, we had about 200,000 people behind bars, prisons and jails. Now we have over 2 million, 2.3 million, so a tenfold increase. Population grew in that time, so the rate has increased from 100 per 100,000 to 700 per 100,000. Not only is that, and, and it had been at about, a, it had been less than 100 per 100,000 going back to 1880. So it's a dramatic change that begins to take place in this period, the 70s, associated with the war on drugs. But that's what fills the system up. And, and then the people who, once they get in, uh, the rules get changed. So not only are sentences mandatory, they're structured around um, first offense, second offense, third offense, where the same offense will get you double the amount of time with the most 
the, the end of the game being three strikes and you're out. So you, 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 you set up a system that once it gets people in, especially if they have a chronic recurrent condition like drug addiction, which guarantees they're going to get exposed to arrest and incarceration again, you just grow the system with them. Uh, the numbers uh, are in the United States uh, so are uh, was unprecedented in our history. Uh, they're also bigger than any other country in the world at this point. There's no country that even comes that close to us, no ma- and certainly no uh, developed democracy in Europe or, or Asia or Latin America has these kinds of numbers. Uh, all of Europe, uh, for example, there are more people in American prisons for uh, nonviolent drug offenses, about half a million, than there are in all of the European prisons for all offenses. Oh, wow. Yeah. And that's, uh, the European Union has 400 million people. They have 100 million more people than we do, and they have fewer people in prison than we have just for drug offenses, nonviolent drug offenses. See, see this uh, is like what, just... What other things? <laughs> uh, the racial issue is huge. The disparities in it, uh, you know, throughout the history of the United States, there are always more black people in prison than white people, three or four to one. But now it's 12 to one. Uh, and what, so uh, you so said... In every respect, the, the, the system gets worse, it gets bigger, it gets more damaging to more people. The children of prisoners have a much higher likelihood of becoming prisoners themselves. Uh, the infant children of prisoners die at 25% higher rate than the infant children of non-prisoners of comparable class and race. Yeah, and, and so am I, do I have this right? Uh, I know we have a higher percentage of people in prison than any other country. Do we have a higher raw number of people in prison? Way, way away, way much higher. Than China or anybody? Yeah, country five five times our population has fewer people, and it's China, uh, has fewer people in prison. Yeah, and so now I'm sure you've talked to people in Europe and other countries, and, I mean, do they just think this is insane? Yes. <laughs> well, I mean, it's, I mean the, you know, the 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 attitude. For example, uh, the European Union countries banished uh, uh, capital punishment. Mm-hmm. As the Supreme Court tried to do here in the seventies, and failed basically. Uh, the state, the, the latest poll shows sixty four percent of Americans favor capital punishment, and that's kind of a bellwether for attitudes about punishment in this country. And uh, again, driven by fear. But also um, uh, driven by a uh, the exploitation of the victims of homicides, especially and the victims of crimes, the way prosecutors behave about about the victims of crimes. They're very, you know, prosecutors are. If you talk to prosecutors, who are the they are the nuclear power of this system. They're the thing that keep it going the way it is. Of course, there. You know, I, I don't know what the percentage is now, but I looked at it once, maybe twenty years ago, and it looked like. You know, prosecute, being a prosecutor is the is the uh, what they call it the gateway drug to being a politician, <laughs> and a, a huge proportion of elected politicians at state and federal levels uh, have histories of prosecutors. I think I think have more than half the pres- uh, the presidents in the last period, presidential candidates have been prosecutors at one time or other, and governors. So it's a way in which uh, what's a prosecutor doing? They're defending the public. In the face of that fear you talk about, they're defending the public. They're they're they're, they're getting justice for 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 people, families who who have been victimized themselves. There's nothing worse uh, than having you know the death, losing a family member. The death is a terrible thing under any circumstances, but if it's homicide, much much worse for everybody. It's very very frightening for people. 
that their loved one can be murdered and the state can't do anything to prevent it or can't find the person. So the punishment of people involved in, in violent crimes especially is very important for the state to demonstrate. It almost doesn't matter who they punish. Mm-hmm. They've got to punish someone. Yeah. That's, what the, that's what the victim's family needs. That's, that's, that's the product they give back to the community. We punish people who do crime. Did they really do them? Well, you know, um, uh, you know, we think so. He's, a, he's the most likely candidate. We have a process, and they were convicted by a jury of their peers. You know, I don't know if you remember the Vietnam War. They used to say, kill them all and let God sort them out. Yeah. Well, that actually goes back to, uh, I think, the Crusades, I think, is when that, that phrase actually originally came from. Oh, really? Yeah. I can believe it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, you know, so we're just about out of time here. So, uh, Ernest, if you could leave us with one thing, and again, the book is A Plague of Prisons, The Epidemiology of Mass Incarceration of America. If you could tell us, like somebody listening right now is like, okay, I, I'm really awake to this issue now. What can I do? To, to help okay. change this. What we have to do, and anyway, everybody has a different kind of access to it. They can be educate their children and neighbors, uh, stand up and say, no, that's nonsense when they hear nonsense. But in practical terms, two things need to happen. We need to see prison as a problem rather than a solution. And having too many people in prison causes all kinds of problems, much worse than the drugs, especially at the mental clinic. So we have to stop putting people in prison for nonviolent drug offenses. That would like put a third few. We put 600,000 people in prison each year. We can knock 200,000 off the top of that. Half of that would be not arresting people and jailing them for marijuana. Okay? At the other end, coming out of prison, what happens now is because the people are so badly damaged by being in prison, not just at the psychological level, but uh, as citizens, they're unable to go back and function competitively. They can't vote, they can't get jobs, they can't get school loans, can't visit their grandmother in the housing project, they have a drug offense. We've got to begin to remove that, that, that pale that, that hangs over people uh, when they come out of prison such that they can reintegrate into the community. And we have to approach that the same way uh, like it's a civil war. We can't, we can't see it just as an individual matter of this guy did something against the law and he's got to pay the price and he's got to get rehabilitated and so on. That's true, too. But when you have a million such people uh, or in a, you know, in a housing project in Brooklyn, we spend three, five million dollars on incarcerating people from one block in a housing project, which money that would pay for 30 or 50 mental health professionals, teachers, care of the elderly, you name it. What could 50 social workers and teachers and nurses do in a block in the city? It's a lot more than putting 50 guys in prison, but they cost the same. It costs about a salary to put someone in prison for a year. So we've got to begin to realize that we can't afford to do this. New York State has led the way in this, actually. We've, we've rolled back some of the felony, mandatory felony census. We've, we've dropped our prison population 20,000 out of 70,000. We're down to 50 now in the last 10 years. And it's by, by changing the drug laws, about letting people in. Got to, we've got to do away with those laws. And then when people come out of prison... We, we have to set up some kind of process, I think like the truth and reconciliation process in South Africa or Rwanda, dealing with these horrendous histories, apartheid, genocide. But if they can work that out at the community level in Rwanda, believe me, we can work it out in Watts or in Bedford-Stuyvesant in Brooklyn. Okay, we, we are out of time. Again, they, uh, listeners, you can find out more about this at plagueofprisons.com. Again, the book is A Plague of Prisons, The Epidemiology of Mass Incarceration in America, author Ernest Rucker. Ernest, thank you so much for spending the time with us today. Thank you. It's a pleasure. Be well. Okay. Same.
with you. Okay, yes, that does it. We are out of time. Again, the opinions expressed on this program are not necessarily those of the KUCI staff or management or the UC Board of Regents. And if you want to give me some feedback on the show, you can email me at rglarson at org. Uh, stay tuned. Uh, Matt Kaplan is coming right up with presentation of Counterspin and Planetary Radio. And I will be talking to you next week. Robert Larson here on Out the Rabbit Hole, KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine, also on the web at KUCI.org.